0: Last week, I was grateful to be able to take my uh, lovely wife, Eliza to see a a production of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical, no, it wasn't Hamilton, Uh, In the Heights. We went to see In the Heights at the the November Theater. Have any of you gone to see that since it's been in Richmond? Anybody else? In the Heights? No. Okay. Well, don't worry, I'm going to explain what was going on. Because I think there's a helpful illustration here. that The set, if you've ever been to a musical, the set is, is what's on the stage. Uh, it was beautiful. And the vocals were quite convincing. Uh, but it was the lyrics to one particular song that, that struck me. I'm one of those guys who is very attentive to words. Surprise, surprise. Um, so the music could be great. The acting could be great. But, you know, what's Williams doing out there? I am listening to every word. What does it mean? What is it saying? So there's one, one lyric, one song that really stuck with me. An, an older Latino woman called uh, Abuela Claudia, grandmother Claudia, recounts the story of her life in New York City uh, beginning in 1943 when she emigrated with her mother to America looking for a steady work and a better life. And, and the song is called Paciencia y, Paciencia y Fe, Patience and Faith, uh, which is the life motto she learned from her mother. So As a title, Paciencia y Fe, it intrigued me because faith is not a topic you would typically expect to hear anything about in the production of a secular musical. But if you listen carefully to the lyrics, it's clear that her faith, Claudia's faith, is simply a lifelong unwavering confidence that somehow with enough hard work and enough patience and waiting, life will get better. If I just work hard enough, if I just wait long enough, life will get better. And in the last few lines of her soliloquy, Claudia reveals that her paciencia y fe has finally been rewarded because she pulls out of her pocket a winning lottery ticket. And so the music is moving, of course. Uh, The melody is intense. The sense of triumph at the end of her monologue is palpable and everything within me and I think pretty much the rest of the room wanted to cheer a resounding yes paciencia y fe is the right way to live because if you just are patient and you persevere things will get better so we all cheered and then on the way home you know processing it afterward I I couldn't shake this sense that while Paciencia y Fe appeared to pay off for Abuela Claudia, and in many ways, what does it capture? It captures the American dream, right? If you work hard enough, wait long enough, life will just work out okay. It's fundamentally a really tragic motto for life. It's a tragic motto. It's not a comedy, it doesn't end well. It's tragic. Why why do I say that? Because her faith, think about this, her faith was nothing more than a subjective assumption that things will eventually turn out okay if you just wait long enough. You realize that? Subjective assumption. She has no reason, no objective external grounds for knowing they will. And, and quite frankly, if, if my life, and if we're being honest, I think your life is any indicator, that's not always the case, right? I mean, many times, the longer we wait, the harder we work, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. I think far more honest are the words of Solomon. Ecclesiastes 9.2, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, To the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who doesn't sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is is he who shuns an oath. Solomon's not just trying to rain on our parade. (laughs) He's reminding us that the only thing we know for certain about the circumstances of our life is that eventually all of us are going to die. The righteous no less than the wicked. And, and every other assumption about, about your health, about your relationships, about your net worth, all those are simply assumptions. You can't know for certain that with enough patience fe, your circumstances in this life will get better. You don't know that. I think that reality, which which the book of Ecclesiastes refers to over and over again as the vanity of life in this world, That, that reality, that vanity makes the certainty that the Lord holds out to us in 1 John chapter 5 really precious, really precious and quite a gift. So last week you may be thinking, wait, is there a mistake here? I thought we looked at the same passage. Well, we did. Uh, We read 1 John 5, 13 through 21 last Sunday, but we only got through a little bit of it because there's so much certainty here that begs to be understood slowly and carefully. Seven times in eight verses, there's some version of that you may know or that we may know. Certainty, knowledge, assurance, confidence, it's just all throughout these verses, and and when John says those things, that knowledge, he's not talking about a subjective assumption, Boila Claudia, that life will just turn out okay. He's not doing that. He's talking about the objective certainty that God holds out to us through the gospel. There's a difference. So last week we focused on verses 13 to 15, and this week we're going to focus, Lord willing, On 16 through 21. But I want to remind you that the big idea in this whole passage is the same. The big idea last week, same as the big idea this week, okay? Knowing Jesus enables us to live with certainty in the midst of a very uncertain world. That's the big idea. Knowing Jesus enables us to live with certainty in the midst of a very uncertain world. In other words, the only kind of patience and faith that is always rewarded and never disappointed, is a tenacious trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done, is doing, and will do everything he said he will do. That is what faith looks like. There's a depth of assurance, a confidence in Christ that the vanity of this world cannot shake. And helping us see that is why John wrote this letter. Right? It's all about helping us be assured in our salvation. And as he reaches the conclusion here, as I mentioned last Sunday, he highlights four different certainties. kinds of confidence that we have, objectively, in Christ, that the Lord offers us through the gospel. So we looked at confidence in our salvation last Sunday. We, we began speaking of confidence in prayer. And then later in this section, we'll get to confidence in our perseverance and confidence in the truth. We focused primarily on the first two, confidence in our salvation, confidence in prayer, last Sunday. But I actually want to pick up with that second one again. Confidence in prayer. We'll get to three and four. But I want to linger on the second one because John lingers here. Okay? So what is this confidence in prayer? We talked about last Sunday, we saw in verses 14 to 15, what does it look like in action? All right, so in 14 and 15, a little bit of review here, John establishes a principle for the Christian life. Okay, a principle for Christian life. What, What is that principle? That God's eagerness to hear and answer our request enables us to pray with confidence. That's the principle guiding the Christian life, God's eagerness to hear and answer a request enables us to pray with confidence, but he doesn't leave that principle in space, you know? Maybe you've sat in a sermon before and you think, well, that makes theoretical sense, but I don't have a clue what that means with my life. Well, John anticipates that we have that issue, so he writes verse 16. He applies the principle to a really difficult situation. It's a great example that we can face as Christians, namely, what do we do When another Christian, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, falls into sin. I mean, it's not like that's ever happened, right? (laughs) No joke, happens all the time. Now, just to be careful here, please know that when I use the word sin, I am not referring to what a bunch of old, dead, white guys from the colonial days decided was right and wrong. Okay? Okay. If that's how you think the church defines what sin is, it's what all the old people don't want me to do. Nonsense. Okay? That's not what sin is. Look at verse 17. This is a great one verse, I believe, four-word description of what is sin. Verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. Wrongdoing. That's what sin is. So, begs the question, right? How do we know what's right and wrong? What is wrongdoing? Who gets to decide what wrongdoing is? Well, God does. God does. He's our creator, he's our king, and as such, this is so important. He has an absolute right to say what is right and what is wrong and to tell us how to live. So it's it's the law of God that determines what's right and wrong, not what you think, not what I think, and certainly not what a majority of people in our culture think. God does that. And to be quite honest, as Christians, we do what's wrong. All the time. (laughs) Maybe you haven't been in church much or you've been leery of coming to church and part of what's kept you away is just, come on, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Well, I'm here to tell you that we are. (laughs) We are. So there you go. That shouldn't keep you away. And you know what else? You are too. (laughs) You're welcome, Mercy. (laughs) Because what's common to all of us, friends, we all, on some level, Christian or non-Christian, God has hardwired into us a sense of what is actually right and wrong. He confirms that clearly in his word. He, he evaluates our internal senses with the objectivity of his word. But we don't always obey. In fact, a lot of times we don't obey. Even as Christians, God's forgiven us, he's adopted us, he's he's delivered us from the power of sin, he's he's given us every reason, this is what's so sad about it, to trust that he loves us, that his ways are best, to submit to him. He's given us every reason to do that, and yet we still choose the path of insanity. And that's what sin is, right? It's insane. When you step back and think about it. That the God who made us and promises that his ways are not just right, they're good. How, how can he know what's good for me? He's God. How does he know? I'm a creature. How does he know what's good for me? Well, because he made you. He knows what's good for us. And so it's insane when we choose to reject that. But we do. First 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And in verses 15 and 16, John distinguishes between two different kinds of sin. Okay? There is a sin that does not lead to death, and there's a sin that leads to death. Understanding what John is saying here takes some work. <laughs> it's partly why we couldn't preach all this in one week. I should also say up front that there are a lot of faithful Christians who, who disagree as to exactly what john is saying here okay and and so there is room for different perspectives but i want to lay out for you not just a bunch of options and then say good luck i want to present to you humbly but as passionately as i can what i believe john is saying here um, just know that i think there's room for difference okay so when john refers to remember two kinds of sins sin and that leads to death and that doesn't lead to death when he refers to sin that does not lead to death, I think he's describing sins committed by genuine Christians. Okay, men and women who, who fear the Lord and they've expressed their fear of the Lord by repenting of their sin, trusting Jesus as their Savior, and submitting to him accordingly. That's a great one-sentence description of what it means to be a Christian. <laughs> okay? Being a Christian doesn't mean living a perfect life, It means fighting to follow Jesus in every area of life. That's different, okay? That's why I could say we're all a bunch of hypocrites and we can still stay here and encounter God, right? And if that's you, if you are fighting to follow Jesus in every area of life, if you are a genuine Christian, then Jesus makes an immeasurably precious promise to you in the Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 24. Listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, the word of the gospel, and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What kind of life is John speaking of there? What's eternal life? Right? Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you become a Christian, God does what? He brings you, as it were, from death to life. That's what he does. And he promises that on the day when you stand before his throne of judgment, as a result of that, that you will not be condemned to eternal death on account of your disobedience, you will be welcomed into eternal life on account of Christ's obedience for you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That that is the promise God makes to you if you are genuinely a Christian, okay? So, So what does that mean for genuine Christians? Well, it means that eternal life is not something that you have earned through your obedience. Eternal life, therefore, is a gift from God and not something you can lose through your disobedience. You following me? If you didn't earn it through your obedience, you're not going to lose it through your disobedience. You receive it because of Christ's obedience. And therefore, the sins that a genuine Christian commits are not sins that lead to death in an eternal sense. So, follow me. What is John talking about when he contrasts then sins that do not lead to death sins that a Christian commits with sins that lead to death. Well, he's simply contrasting the sins a Christian commits with the sins a non-Christian commits. Okay? Because while the sins of a Christian, as I've just explained, they never lead to eternal death, the sins of a non-Christian always lead to eternal death. Why do I say that? Well, because God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't grade on a curve, okay? God doesn't look at you and say, you know what? You're not as good as you should be, but you're not as bad as you could be. So, come on in. I mean, we can relate to each other like that. That's not how God welcomes people into heaven. There is one standard, friend, and one standard only for entering the hope of glory. What's that standard? It is perfect, spotless righteousness. You don't get to negotiate with your God. He sets the standard. There is one standard for entering the hope of glory. Perfect, spotless righteousness. And in Jesus' day, by the way, the Pharisees who who happened to be, I mean, they get a bad rap, rightly so, but we are too, okay? But the Pharisees appeared in the eyes of a lot of people to be the most righteous folks around. And Jesus knew that. So what did he say in Matthew 5.20? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine hearing those words? I mean, it's like, think of the most righteous, outwardly righteous person you know. And God's saying, hey, come over here. Tell you something. Unless you're more righteous than that, you don't have a chance. I mean, talk about unnerving. Well, what's his point? Well, Jesus' point is simply that the only righteousness that qualifies you to enter the kingdom of heaven is the righteousness of God himself. Which is what God offers you through the gospel, friend. Romans 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. His righteousness has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's why the sins of a non-Christian, one who has not received the righteousness of God as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ, always lead to eternal death. And what kinds of sins characterize a non-Christian? Well, it's everything John's warned us about over and over again throughout the whole letter, right? So, refusing to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, refusing to obey God's commands, and a failure to love others. There's three tests we've looked at, especially the way that God's loved us in Christ. Those sins, those are the sins that characterize a non-Christian, and they always lead to eternal death. Now, the sins a genuine Christian commits... Please listen carefully here. They include unbelief, (laughs) a lack of obedience, and a failure to love. Same three things. But they do not characterize the Christian's life in the same way that they characterize the non-Christian's life because the Christian life is a life of repentance, it's a life of repentance. What do I mean by that? The Christian life isn't a life that just enters through a little toll booth of repentance and then goes off and has a grand old time. The Christian life, from start to finish, it's a life of repentance, as Luther said. It's a life of turning away from what is wrong, what is sinful, and a life of turning toward what is right and good. Our whole life is that. Our life is repentance. Repentance. And even when a Christian sins though we're fighting that fight, their sin never leads to eternal death because God has given every genuine Christian eternal life. An eternal life that is not ours because of the merits of our performance, but because of the perfection of Christ's performance. So that's what the sin that leads to death, sins of a non-Christian, sins that do not lead to death sense of a Christian. That's the background here, as best I understand it. So with that in view, let's look at verse 16 again. OK? And here's the big question. How should the confidence we have in prayer, we saw last week in verses 14 and 15, How should that inform our response to a fellow brother or sister in Christ who falls into sin? So look at verse 16. What does John say? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he's sinning as a Christian, he shall ask, and God will give him life. He shall ask, God will give him life. I want you just to think for a minute about all the ways we tend to respond as Christians that are not good. (laughs) when fellow Christians sin? Let's just think about this. How, how do we tend to respond when a Christian in our church or circle of relationship sins? Well, sometimes we ignore the issue. We ignore the issue. We, we're we afraid of, of speaking up because we're afraid that we're going to offend them and lose the relationship. You know, sometimes we don't just ignore the issue, but we attack the issue. Maybe you've done that where where you rebuke the person head-on as fast as possible and demand an immediate change of heart. Sometimes we gossip about the issue, you know? Bless their heart, but did you know what so-and-so did last weekend? I mean, please pray. (laughs) Right? We do that. We ignore, we attack, we gossip, and sometimes we just simply run from an issue. You know? It's just flat-out awkward. It's like, ever since I saw them starting to do that, Man, I just, hi, I'm Matthew. You know, just, what do you do? (laughs) I don't interact with them anymore. And it's like eggshells and do they know they're sinning? Obviously not. Um, I'll just pull away. I'll just pull away. Friends, I I think all those responses are understandable. But I hope you know that none of those responses are biblical. They're not because they ignore verse 16. What's the word of God in verse 16? When a fellow Christian falls into sin, the first and most important thing we must do for them is pray for them. Pray for them. What do do we pray? What What do we ask God to do? We ask God to give them spiritual life. We don't first speak to them about their sin. We first speak to God. And we keep on speaking to God. What are we speaking to God about? What are we asking him to do? We're asking God to turn that brother or sister away from the path of sin and back onto the path of life. What's the path of life? That's a path that leads to eternal life in the future and yet at the same time yields a present and abundant experience, a taste of that life in the here and now. So the eternal life God's given you through, through faith in Christ, if you're a genuine Christian, isn't something you lose when you fall into sin. Okay, that was a great moment. To, amen. Praise God. All right? When you sin as a Christian, the eternal life God has given you through faith in Christ isn't something you lose, even when you fall into sin. That's right. But, you can feel this coming. What do we lose? What does happen when we sin as Christians? Well, we lose, we lose our awareness of God's presence. Right? We, we lose the joy of our salvation. There's a coldness of heart that, that begins to set in toward the things of God. A, a diminished affection for the Savior and, and a heavy weariness that just marks everything in life. And it's not surprising because what are we doing when we're sinning? Well, we're looking to people, possessions, or experiences to give us what only God can give us. So when that's happening, when that happens, what do we need? When you're doing that, when I'm doing that, what do we need more than anything else? We need God to give us life. That's what we need, okay? We need the Lord, listen, to help us recognize our sin for the evil that it is run from our sin in light of what it is, and return to loving and following the Savior that we could be delivered from that sin. That's what we need. So what does that mean when it comes to how we relate to another Christian who is sinning? Well, it means this. It's not ultimately the persuasiveness of your speech or the earnestness of your tears or the persistence of your warnings that can bring a son or daughter of the king back onto the highway to heaven. It's the king himself. It's the king himself who does that. So so will he use those means? Yes. Okay? But take care that all those means, warning, exhortation, rebuke, persuasion, take care that all those things are, are saturated with a fervent prayer that proves to that brother or sister that your trust is not in what you're doing here, but in what God is able to do in their heart. If you are not praying, if I am not praying first, then I am reducing the Christian life to a fight where we are working with all we have in our humanity. That's not true. I need God to give me life when I've fallen into sin. And therefore, the main thing I need you to do for me when I fall into sin is pray for me and ask God to give me life. And God's so kind. He's so kind because he knows our tendency to correct first. I mean, I just think of how many times as a parent I have failed in this. I just, I see what's wrong. It's like, ah, gotcha! You know, stop! Stop hitting your brain. It's just immediate correction. There's just no gentleness. There's no patience. There's no quiet confidence in God. There's confidence that if I yell loud enough and jump in quick enough that I can turn them around and I can create repentance. I can't do that. You don't have that power. You cannot reach inside a human heart and make them repent. But God can. And he does. And here's what's so amazing about this. Here's what's so amazing. Verse 16, he shall ask, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, he shall ask, and God will give him life. There are two things I hope you hear in that. There's an urgency. Namely, God has ordained your prayers as the means by which he wants to give that person life. Okay, it's not like God says, hey, by the way, I'm doing this cool giving life, granting repentance thing, and if you ever feel like getting in on it, just call me. No. God's divinely ordained means of giving life to all the Christians around you is your prayers. So there's an urgency there but there's also a confidence. Where's the confidence? He shall ask and what? God will give. You will ask. God will give. There's confidence and, and his word helps us know what that prayer can look like, okay? Psalm 51.7 Pray like this, church. Father, Father, Purge them with hyssop, and they shall be clean. Wash them, and they shall be whiter than snow. Let them hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from their sins and and blot out all their iniquities. Create in them, Lord, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within them. Cast them not away from your presence take not your Holy Spirit from them, restore to them the joy of your salvation, and uphold them with a willing spirit. When you read verse 16, Christian, this is what you should hear. The promised success of your prayers should compel you to pray for the people around you. It's the promised success that compels the prayer. It's not an anxiety that says, I guess if all else fails, I can pray. No, it's the fact that God has promised to answer that prayer when you pray for them that draws out your confidence and ensures your success. It's an amazing promise. So so let this be a church where when we see people around us falling into sin, we do not first yell at them, yell at others, or be quiet, or run away. (laughs) We cry out to the living God. He shall ask, God will give him life. That is an amazing promise. That that is what this confidence in prayer looks like in action. Now, now, some of you are thinking, Matthew, are you conveniently ignoring the end of verse 16? I'm not going to do that. Because there's a confidence we have in praying for a son or daughter of the king that we do not have when we pray for someone who has never bowed the knee to King Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, we'll look at the end of verse 16. Notice John doesn't say, don't bother praying for non-Christians because they're people who are committing sins that lead to death. He doesn't say that. If he had said that, that would be a direct contradiction of 1 Timothy 2.4, where Paul reminds us that God desires what? all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Or, or not even to mention a denial of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. They're, the whole missionary thrust of the Bible presses us to pray for those who don't know the Lord. So, That can't be what John is saying here. So, so his point isn't to discourage us from praying for non-Christians, okay? He's simply saying that there is a distinct kind of confidence that we have in asking God to bring a Christian to repentance that makes our prayers for them different than our prayers for those who don't know the Lord. And that kind of confidence. What is this unique confidence, Matthew, that that we have when we're praying for a fellow Christian that we don't have in the same way when we're praying for a non-Christian? Well, it's verse 18. Look at verse 18. We've seen this confidence we have in our prayer. Now the third confidence, confidence in our perseverance. What is this confidence that we have as Christians that that gives us in our prayers, prayers for fellow Christians, a kind of confidence, a kind of assurance that we don't have when we're praying for non-Christians? Look at verse 18 We know what do we know Paul We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning why not but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him Friends in those words you have if you are a believer Not only a powerful incentive to pray for the believers around you, but you have a tremendous comfort for your own soul. Tremendous comfort. Tremendous comfort. What has John told us over and over again in 1 John? What has he told us? He said, you cannot call yourself a Christian if you persist in sin by refusing to repent of your sins. Just stating what is... Clear, obvious, you can't call yourself a Christian if you're persisting in sin by refusing to repent of your sin. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he, Christ, appeared to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Why is that the case? If you are a genuine Christian, why are you never going to continue in unrepentant sin? What's well, simple. It's because you have been born of God. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been what? Born of God does not keep on sinning. Born of God. What's that? We've seen that before. Well, that's when the Holy Spirit, this is amazing. When you become a Christian, he imparts an enduring principle of spiritual life into your soul. It's, it's a spiritual seed, as it were, that necessarily and inevitably yields the fruit of obedience. So John's told us that already, okay? But but he's reminding us here of something that is no less significant. If, If your faith is genuine, if you have been genuinely born of God, then know this, know this, okay? Right now, today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of your life, Jesus is protecting you. He's protecting you. The Lord, who knit you together, Christian, in your mother's womb, He's not going to let the evil one touch you. He's protecting your faith, if you're a genuine believer, and in so doing, He is ensuring your obedience, because faith is the faith, the wellspring. Faith is the soil out of which. Obedience grows. And and how is Jesus protecting your faith? Well, he's he's protecting you, among other things, from the evil one, right? Protecting you from Satan. What, What is Satan trying to do in the Christian's life more than anything else? He's trying to undermine your faith. Your faith. He wants to annihilate it. And yet, Jesus protecting, keeping power is so great that John can say with resolute confidence the evil one cannot touch you he can't touch you can he tempt you yeah yeah can he oppress you certainly but you know what he can't do he can't do this he can't lay his hands on you and claim your soul for himself he can't do that My boys are eagerly awaiting the start of football season. It's just like Labor Day weekend cannot come soon enough. Okay, anybody with my boys? Some of you? Yeah, right? Okay, I won't ask if it's pro or college, but just football season is great. And I remind my boys most times when we're watching football that there is a position on the football field that never gets enough credit. All right? It's not a skill position it's the offensive line it's the big boys the really big boys that I will never look like that are in the front <laughs> i always i always tell my boys cuz the last like i want to do that and i'm like eh, sorry <laughs> you know it's it's the offensive line and, and you'll hear in a post game report on espn or something what what if the, if your team won they'll say things like they couldn't touch the quarterback why couldn't they touch the QB? Because that offensive line, wherever the incoming defense came, they were there. And so they were never able to touch the quarterback, not because the quarterback had these amazing elusive skills, though some do, but ultimately it's because of that offensive line. If if you're a Christian, friend, there is an impenetrable, cannot-cross Offensive line of the army of the Lord Jesus Christ around your life. And there is nothing that the evil one can send your way that can lay hands on your soul and claim that for himself. There's nothing. John 10:27, "My sheep hear my voice. Talk about confidence and our perseverance. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish because they will always obey. No, no, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's 400 pounds, 6 foot 10, all right? And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. What a promise that is to you, friend. So, so let there be, as we end First John, no lingering anxiety that says, you know, there are a lot of tests in here to know if I'm a genuine Christian. And Boy, I, I think I'm passing right now, but I sure hope I don't fail tomorrow. Friend, if you're in Christ, hear this. It's as if You couldn't fail if you wanted to. The the protection you have in Jesus is that strong. No one, including you, can snatch yourself out of the Father's hand. That's amazing. Amazing promise. There's a confidence in our perseverance here. And and I'm so thankful because there have been a lot of times in 1 John where, where he has very directly challenged those of us who are prone to arrogant, proud presumption and to think that we're Christians despite the conduct of our life that would say we're not but here as he ends he speaks to those of us who are prone to fear prone to wonder if, if we'll be able to persevere and attain the hope of heaven and to those of you who tend to tremble hear this hear this you may be in the world but you're not of the world The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but you don't. You're the Lord. You're his son. You're you're his daughter. and, And he will keep you faithful to the end. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the confidence you have in your perseverance. If you are a genuine Christian, Jesus is going to hold you fast. Okay? And so it's because of him that we can be confident in our salvation, confident in our prayer, confident in our perseverance, and then we'll end with this. Confident in the truth. Confident in the truth. Look at verse 20. And Before I read this, I mentioned this earlier when I prayed. But if you don't recognize this already, we, we really do live in a world where the, the possibility of actually knowing anything is increasingly suspect. And that includes our ability, anybody's ability, to, to know that we have eternal life. What does the world typically say to that today? Well, you may, you may not. That's your religious opinion. I have mine. Who's to say yours is right? That's the world we live in. So in that kind of world, verse 20 couldn't it be more important. Look at verse 20. And we know, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I read it that way on purpose because there's a repeating word in verse 20. What is it? Three times shows up. No or true. Right? We know that the Son of God has come, given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's the word truth. Remember, I said that the big idea of this, this entire conclusion is this that knowing Jesus enables us to live with certainty in the midst of a very uncertain world. And here as we end, friend, I want to very specifically address, why can you know, why can you know that all of this isn't just a, a joke? How, how do I, how, how is it, Matthew, that I can know this, all you're saying, all I've heard, it's, it's not just some theory, but it's true. Christian, the ultimate reason that that you can be certain of the truth, you can be confident of the truth, is simply this. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you come to know the one who is the truth. There is not a standard of truth higher than God, which you can use to evaluate his truthfulness. He is the standard. And if you come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you don't just know what is true, you know the one who is the truth. You're in him who is true. Notice John says that. It's not just that you know him who is true, you're you're in him who is true. So in the historical person of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the true God invaded our world. The true God gave us eternal life. And all the truth of our knowledge, the certainty of our assurance, it all depends on the truth of his revelation and the truth of his person. So let there be no doubt, John says, we can be assured of salvation, we can know that we have eternal life, because the true God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. He's revealed himself to us, who is what? What's Jesus? The way, the truth, and the life that there's no truth apart from him but in him there's a world of certainty a world of certainty so how then to borrow francis Schaeffer's words how should we live what should we do with everything all these confidences that john has drawn our attention well look at verse 21 some people read this and think somebody must have tossed that in there a couple hundred years after John wrote this Um, I think that's crazy because I cannot imagine a better conclusion what does John say little children keep yourselves from idols say what yeah keep yourselves from idols why does he say that for this reason Faithful devotion to God is the right response to gospel-centered certainty about God. It's always the case. Faithful devotion to God and a rejection of all false gods is always the right response to gospel-centered certainty about God. What does that mean? Well, that means, friend, that you and I must stop asking other people, possessions, and experiences to give to us what only jesus can give to us so if you are a believer if you have been assured of salvation if you've genuinely tasted and seen that the lord is good then guard your heart from running after false gods you don't need to do that because you already have all you need in him so refuse to turn away from the one true god rest assured even as i say this Jesus is going to protect you, right? He will keep you in the truth. But please hear this. He will exercise his protecting power in your life by empowering you to keep yourself from idols. So you have an offensive line around you, as it were, but you are not sleeping in the middle. You have work to do. And the protecting power of God enables that work by empowering us to say no to living for idols and yes to living for Jesus. It's a protection that empowers, not a protection that makes us passive. So I can think of no better way to conclude this series than by exhorting you with the words of Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19, if you would close your eyes and listen to this church. And here as I read how it is that in Jesus we have a certainty that is ours in the midst of an uncertain world. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh and as you see the day drawing near. Lord Jesus, help us to do that. Help us to draw near with a full assurance of faith. Thank you that in you, Christ, we have confidence of our salvation, confidence in our prayers, confidence in our perseverance, confidence in the truth. Thank you for giving us certainty in the midst of a a vain and uncertain world. We bless your name for that and we thank you. Help us to live accordingly. Amen.